friends, and welcome to episode six of Cool Story with David J. McNeil. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I really appreciate your support. Today's guest is comedian, queen of the game shows, and owner of Burbank, California's Flappers Comedy Club, Barbara Holiday. It's been an interesting ride for Barbara. She learned at a very early age how to use humor to weather a difficult childhood, and that skill really paid off for her. We'll be chatting about her early work as a kids show host on Fox, her transition to stand-up comedian, what it's like to be a guest on Hollywood Squares, and the general state of comedy today. And make sure to stay tuned after my chat with Barbara for the sixth installment of a little something we like to call... Please don't try this at home. This week's story is presented by my good friend Maureen Riley. Maureen is a Toronto-based producer who has been involved in many high-profile projects, like Big Brother Canada, the CBC's stand-up comedy series Still Standing, Undercover Boss, and Canada's Next Top Model. So stay tuned for that. But now, it's time for my chat with comedian and entrepreneur Barbara Holiday. Hey, Barbara, how are you doing? Great. How are you doing today, David? I'm doing pretty well. I'm doing pretty well. I think uh, it's worth mentioning that uh, it's great to have you on today. It's kind of a bit of a difficult day today, um, civil liberties wise. There's a lot happening uh, in the U.S. right now that you're directly affected by. Today is Blackout Tuesday in Los Angeles. And yes, we have our third night of curfew. So we are on lockdown in lockdown is what I'm calling yeah. it. It's definitely uncharted waters. Correct. First time in many, many years, as as far as I can remember, that we've actually had a curfew. Well, maybe this is the best time to have this conversation and be talking about comedy, which is what we all need, especially at times like these. Well, they're saying laughter is not essential, but I disagree. I think laughter is extremely essential. And I think if we had more of it going on right now, things would be a lot lighter in the world. I really do believe that. I think we've taken away all of the outlets, especially in the arts community, for people to have, you know, stress relief and life relief and just all of the things, artistic mediums that people rely on for their own mental health have been stripped. And right. it's causing people to be angry. <laughs> Comedy provides a valve for us all when we when we uh, when the shit hits the fan, that valve goes off and we feel much better after having a good laugh. So I agree wholeheartedly. Absolutely. And in the news, there's nothing funny happening. I'm, I'm on a mission to bring laughter back right now. <laughs> <laughs> Let's print the T-shirts. Bring in laughter back. Bring in laughter back. <laughs> That's my Justin Timberlake version. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully this. Uh, hopefully we can uh, we can get past this soon, and uh, and uh, and uh, your club will be open again soon, and we can get people in, and we can get people laughing again. Yes. So let's talk about your your club, your career. Um, why don't we go back to the beginning? 
um, and, and your early days, uh, one thing that's come up a few times that I've seen was that you talked about when you were uh, a young girl. Uh, I guess your parents had split and, and, and times were difficult and you were talking about growing up poor, you know, without. And uh, it seems like if you were including that in some of your bios and some of your conversations, that might have informed who you are today. Why don't you tell me a bit about that? Where did the funny begin? <laughs> oh. it, be- <laughs> it began in the... <laughs> well, funny comes from difficulty. That's right. Uh, that's hence the yeah. comedy tragedy masks, if uh, yes. you are familiar. Yeah, the, I did grow up very, very poor, actually. I grew up, I lived in a trailer. I lived on food stamps. Uh, my mom worked as a bartender, which... She'd be totally messed up right now in this uh, current <laughs> mm-hmm. current age of uh, employment. But it, we just we didn't have a lot, and um, there wasn't you know it's we didn't even eat good food because you know good food isn't available when you have food stamps. You know you can't buy organic vegetables on food stamps. You they didn't even have them sure. back then. But. Um, a lot of entertainment options weren't available either. So uh, being funny and uh, making light of our situation, I, I always wanted to be the one that, you know, when we sat down or tried to have a dinner, I would be the one who wanted to, you know, crack the ice or just lighten things up because just everything was sure. so serious all the time. Like when you're broke, you don't have money and you're waiting in line for milk and you're waiting in line for eggs and you're waiting in line for cheese. And then you're, my mother was very depressing also. And maybe because she wasn't happy with her own life. And that really, um, stressed me out. And I felt like if I could be silly and hammy and I do a lot of physical stupid things, uh, that's, I really like physical comedy a lot. It was maybe a release, you know, um, physically that I could be a ham and be silly. And I used to do shows in my closet, uh, for, uh, my mom and, uh, sister and my dad. And I would, you know, open the closet door and come out, you know, like I was some kind of, I don't know, physical comedy gymnast, I guess you could say. And I just did stupid things with my face and my body. And, uh, my voice. And I realized I was getting laughs. And every time I got laughs, I felt better somehow. I felt like I was not in yeah. my present situation. I felt like I was transported to some other universe where people smiled and the sun shined and things were great. <laughs> yeah. And it, it apparently it worked. You said you got laughs. So it alleviated the tension in the house too. So uh, I also got smacked. You know, what better reward? Yeah. What's that? I also got smacked. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Well, there's that, too. Yeah, those were the days when you could hit your kids for being obnoxious. Nowadays, I get yeah, nowadays yeah. I get paid for it. But back then, it wasn't always so funny. <laughs> Did you ever pull the, I'm going to call children's services? Oh, we didn't even know what that was. Are you kidding me? Oh, yeah. It's like, yeah. no, we call them. They take away our food stamps. Come on. Don't yeah. be doing that. Oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> Ouch. I want to eat. <laughs> yeah. No kidding. Yeah. So that was kind of where it starts, right? It sounds like. Oh, God. Yeah. Well, I think um, I didn't really know that I was doing stand up comedy or comedy at the time. I was just being an obnoxious, silly kid, you know. Um, but I did in, in high school, I actually got involved in 
forensics. I like to tell the story because people think forensics is crime investigation. Right. It's actually speech in the speech and debate club. And one of the things I started to do was um, get involved uh, with the speech and debate team. And I was able to travel to speech meet, you know, uh, and debate events. So that got me out of my house. I felt like I was traveling. And I actually became very, very good at uh, two types of uh, speech. One was humorous interpretation. And that was where you would actually look up a funny monologue and basically recite it. You didn't write it yourself. You just basically Mm -hmm. um, recreated it. Um, Right. That's kind of my first dabbling in realizing that I kind of understood the comedy timing because I became a national champion in speech and debate in that category and also persuasive speaking, oratory. So I learned that I was very good at convincing people to do things. (laughs) Right. And do you remember any of the monologues that you used for uh, for those competitions? Oh, my God. I knew you were going to catch me on that. (laughs) God. Now I remember a little bit like a funny thing happened on the way to the forum or, um, you know, any any clips from any monologues from plays, um, things like that. That was actually... But it wasn't really stand up. And that was I still hadn't figured out stand up yet. I I just so I always ended up in the comedy realm. After that, I went to Mm -hmm. I went to college at San Diego State University and I studied theater. And um, there I started to do a lot of musical theater. Um, And I was a very good dancer, just a natural dancer. And so. I would always end up being the one in the musical that did all the stunts, like the jester, basically. I was the one they threw around, (laughs) the singing and dancing and the and the punchline. Um, Once again, in the comedy realm, even though I didn't really understand per se where I was headed yet, I didn't think, oh, I'm going to own a comedy club someday or be a comedy mistress or whatever they call me now. I don't know. (laughs) We'll find. Right. (laughs) Well, you graduated from university and thought you were going to, for, for a while, you were going to teach school, right? Well, I was studying theater and I went ahead and got my C-Best. So I was going to teach high school drama and English. Yeah. And sure. uh, I did some student teaching in San Diego, believe it or not, and uh, came home every day and uh, cried uh, and said, what am I doing? Because they apprehended like 30 guns and knives in one day in a San Diego school. Wow. And I was like, and you think I look young now. You should have seen me back then. I mean, here I, I thought, oh, I'm going to be the coolest teacher. They're going to love me. And, you know, well, I was student teaching, tried teaching a, a kissing scene or a touching scene, any kind of intimacy scene with two teenagers. Yeah. And the boy thinks you, yeah. the boy thinks you're hot and the girl hates you because the boy thinks you're hot. that's basically the dynamic that was happening. And I was like, plus the guns and knives. It was just, I did, I realized I did not like, I felt like high school was being more like being a babysitter than a teacher. I just didn't really like it at all. And so, um, yeah, that, uh, that really bummed me out. (laughs) And I, I, was still going to try to teach, but then I, I, I pretty much knew after like I did about a year of student teaching and I was like, this isn't going to work. 
but I would, I had it as a backup because most performers don't get lucky enough to land, you know, a performance job. So sure. But I, when I was uh, in college, I had um, been dating a guy that I had met in high school and we ended up getting married. Like I was a junior in, co- mm-hmm. in college and um, he was from Oregon and he wanted me to get married and drop out of school. And I was like, mm-hmm. I have a year of school left. I'm, I think I'm going to finish, you know? So yeah. he went back up to Oregon and then I stayed in San Diego and finished my bachelor's degree and then basically moved up there. I would never have done it, but I was married. So I, I moved up to Oregon and then weirdly enough, I landed my dream, a dream job right outside of college as a theater major. I auditioned to be a kids club host for Fox television. Right. It was a big deal, yeah. big deal at the time. Um, in the eighties, <clears throat> I mean, uh, late and, you know, and, uh, Fox and the FCC were, were looking for education. They were seeking out educational programming. In fact, they required a certain amount of educational programming every day. And so yeah. when I went from being in the San Diego, LA area, going to Oregon, I ended up getting really lucky because you're basically a big fish in a little pond. You know, they're like, yeah, sure. That's a great way to start out, right? Yeah. Oh, you're from LA and oh my God, no wonder you, you yeah. can sing and you can dance. And um, I got an agent immediately when I went to Oregon and then the agent got me the audition for the Fox Kids Club. And I went in for this audition. I have a clip of it if you dare ever want to air it or it's hilarious. <laughs> um, and we had to make up our own character, by the way. So this is kind mm-hmm. of the early standup uh, concept you'll hear, I'll bring back to you later, but they basically yeah. said, you have to create a character and you go in and you just be some character. And I was like, well, what are the guidelines and what are that? And they're like, we don't care. You, you make it up and you go in and you do your own dialogue and you, you know, just make something up. And I'm like, ah. yeah. so I thought about it for a few days before the audition and I I realized I was, you know, I was a dancer, so I was really good at movement and stuff. And mm-hmm. people would always say that that I looked like a cartoon, like a cartoony character. And so I just tried to right. use that in my head to come up with something um, fun. And so I came up with the name Roxy the Fox. And I decided that I would use my movement. And since I was good at dance and gymnastics, I thought, well, what? I'm going to wow them when I walk in the audition with some stunts. So I literally right. opened the door when they call my name and I did back walkovers all the way into the room to the center of the room and then jumped and put my hands out and said, hey, kids, I'm Roxy the Fox. That's it. And nice. that was how I started. And somehow it just felt like right. And then I just started pretending I was making a recipe for peanut butter and jelly and use this high pitch, really energetic voice and a lot of movement. And when I was done, I, I walked out of there and I, this never happened to me ever since or ever before, but I, I left there thinking, I got that job. Like I, I, nailed it. I yeah. definitely think that this is the job for me and yeah, I got it. So, but here's what was really bad news. I, it's terrible news, but it, it sort of molded me early for this profession. Um, literally two weeks after I got the job, my agent that was amazing and took me on, I got, 
uh-huh. uh, died in a car accident. Oh, wow. And so I had no guidance. Like here I was yeah. working every day, Monday through Friday from three to five o'clock on air at a television station. And I have mm-hmm. nobody telling me about SAG or after or unions or how it works. Right. I don't know what I should be getting paid. I'm not sure if they're mm-hmm. taking advantage of me or, and how much do I do? Do I write, direct, produce, you know? So I really sure. got thrown into this kind of a mess, really. And was also devastated about my age. And she helped me get the job and I really wanted it to pay off for her. So I ended up working at the station and I wasn't in any unions or anything. And as, mm-hmm. as I said, I was, I was on air Monday through Friday from three to five o'clock. It was back during Darkwing Duck. The Simpsons just came out. Um, yeah. And uh, all of the cartoons from that era. And I was basically like a VJ. So I, when you came home from school, you'd say, hey, kids, Roxy the Fox here. Today, we're going to talk to Mr. Mailbox. And yeah, sure. I would introduce the cartoons. And now on Darkwing Duck, here we go. So I came on and if you grew up in the Oregon market during the uh, 80s, early eight, I'm not, am I, I'm, <laughs> somewhere around then people listening, <laughs> I've met people who know who Roxy the Fox is. I usually get a couple emails every year from kids who've grown up now and remember it, you know, fondly. And um, mm-hmm. it's been, it's kind of cool. The legacy never dies. I mean, when you're young and you're watching TV every day like that, you know, those, yeah characters from your childhood really inspire you a lot. So it's, it's an honor to have done that. And, um, thankfully I had a bit of fame and to be honest, it wasn't what I was looking for. I I didn't really Mm want to be famous. I just wanted to make people laugh, but I also realized I really didn't like kids that much. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I will, I will tell you something about this. I completely get what you're talking about because of the first um, the first appearances I ever did on live television were in the uh, mid nineties, uh, working on a show that had the same format as that it was, it was public access, it was not public access, but it was like PBS here in, in, well, in our province, you know, Ontario in Toronto. And it was the same kind of deal. You would do, we would do sketches between all the big shows. So, uh, I wasn't one of the main characters, but I would come on and do characters from time to time. It was the same kind of thing where you do a sketch and then throw to, in this time, it was like either Teletubbies or Arthur or the Magic School Bus or all those shows. So it's the same sort of format, right? After school block. Yep. Yeah. And now uh, the first person who was the guest on on my podcast was my buddy Joe, and he was uh, one of the co-hosts of that. And to this day, now he's, you know, he's almost 50 years old, and he gets people coming up to him that watch the show um, when they were children, and now they have kids. And they can quote him stuff he said back back in those days. It's just amazing because you really you've got those people right at a moment when they're just they're all in. Right. Okay. here's a really fun part to this story that I never imagined would happen. I was married. I got married to the guy in Oregon and um, he ended up hating the fact that I was a public figure in the community like that was a not a good thing to someone who grew up there. And so I'm getting all the attention and he just didn't like the entertainment business at all. Anyway, mm-hmm. he ended up having an affair and, mm-hmm. um, I was devastated by that in the, in the community. I was like, I ended up staying there maybe a year and a half or two years after that. And he got 
my ex-husband got back with an old high school girlfriend. Well, this, right. this is kind of important because I moved to L.A. Uh, right after all that happened. I've been in Burbank ever since. It's been, you know, uh-huh. 28 years now. And um, literally about 11 years ago, I get a phone call. I'm sitting at, in my office in Burbank. I get a phone call from a young woman. And, and she says, are you Roxy the Fox? And I'm like, who is this? <laughs> right? And she starts talking to me and ends up, this is no joke. I mean, you cannot write this stuff. It's my ex-husband's kid with the woman he had an affair with. Oh, really? And they love, they, were wa- they watched back episodes of my show and everyone in Eugene, Oregon specifically knew about, and most of Portland, all over Oregon, really, but specifically yeah. in Eugene where I was taping it, like it was just a legacy. It still is. So, but here yeah. I get a call from my ex-husband's affair kid. And I'm like, <laughs> what are you sure you, do you want to? say something to your parents? Do they know you're talking to me? And she said, um, oh, my dad wouldn't care, but my mom would kill me. And I'm like, I can't, I can't talk to you. And I get off the phone and I tell my current friend, I'm like, this can't be my kid, right? (laughs) 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 Okay, good. Well, that's pretty cool though. That's pretty cool that, that uh, you made that much of a mark on her that, uh, that even the, the, the awkwardness of that, uh, she was able to, to look past that, to give you a call. She wasn't even like it's so weird that that would and then yeah <laughs> literally about a year and a half ago I got I, every now and then I get calls very weird but I got a connection on Twitter and it was a, a gentleman saying um hey I, I have to solve a bet my friends and I my friends think that Roxy the Fox never existed because when I was doing this show we actually used beta tapes and um yeah at a television station. Yeah. They would, you know, literally they had a traffic setup where you would have to insert different beta tapes and then you'd insert the Roxy Fox segment and then you'd insert the ad. And then it was like literally like multitasking to the max. And Mm -hmm. the station had a fire several years later and some of the footage burned. And, um, so I happened to have a bunch of the tapes because I took them with me. I owned the character, by the way, I made up the character. So when I left the TV station, right. I made them sign a document that said I could maintain my character. I'm not going to do anything yeah. with the stuff I did with them. But like, if I ever want to do that character again, of course, sure. they said yes. So I put a bunch of these clips up on YouTube. You can actually see them mm-hmm. now. Oh, cool. And I, I sent them to the kid and he was like, Yes, I won the bet. Thank you. And all my friends now were like, we we solved it because it was some kind of like legendary mystery, whether it actually existed or not, you know? Right. <laughs> so that that ended up being something that that in the long run, you were like, oh, this isn't really one of what I want to do long term. But I mean, that's that's a hell of an experience. And 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 a lot of uh, yeah. It's interesting too what you said about getting like nailing that gig or whatever. It was like all the things that you had done even as a kid kind of all came to the forefront at that moment for you to get that. Yeah. Yeah. Right down to you being the entertainer in your closet. Yeah, and honestly, when I was doing that, what was most rewarding is I knew my viewers very well. They were poor kids that were coming home from mm-hmm. school and needed to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. So, I felt like I was talking to them directly. Latchkey kids. Yeah. And um, it 
I was still young enough, you know, I was between, I think, 19 and 24 when I was doing that. And again, like what a huge opportunity. I also learned a ton at the TV station. I learned about advertising. It was when Fox was just launching. So I, I learned a ton about Nielsen ratings and advertising and the business side. And I sure. wrote, directed, and produced my own show at 19 years old. I mean, who does? The only thing. Oh, 19. Wow. I know. The only thing I didn't, didn't do was uh, the camera work, you know. Um, but I would also do appearances in the community where I'd go out to malls and, you know, greet kids and talk to kids. And I did PSAs from, and uh, uh, advertisements for muscular dystrophy and lots of community yeah. awareness and work. But at, after about four years, I literally knew that I did not want to have children, period. <laughs> I always say being a kids club host is the best form of birth control. If anyone, <laughs> you need birth control, be a kids club host. Um, well, these are things that are good to find out early <laughs> on, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think it was. I just, uh, people thought I was some kind of saint too. Parents were like, here, take my kid. You know, like yeah. they didn't even, I was just on TV, but it, 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 it enlightened me how we see public figures and celebrities and pe- sure. people we idolize. We sort of imagine that they're somewhat greater than they are because I'm a 19 year old kid. and You're handing me your kid, your baby. Like I've like held babies my whole life, you know? Yeah. And, uh, I just, I thought also, I think coming from my tragic childhood that I didn't want, I I, I didn't want, I don't want to birth anybody who's going to have that kind of situation. And then seeing all these kids out there in those situations and and a lot of poor, poor kids, you know, Mm -hmm. would come to the free mall showings and stuff. And it was, it was, um, it broke my heart. I, I just, I didn't want to be in that sadness anymore. So I kept kept leaning toward the comedy. So I quit cold Turkey and actually came to Los Angeles and thought, yeah. and thought, Oh, I'm going to be a big star. You know, here I am. By the way, remember I wasn't in the union, but right. I was smart enough to figure out when I came to LA, I was like, Hmm, I should have been in the union for four years. So I actually wrote SAG and AFTRA and, uh, told them about my situation and they called the TV station and blah, 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 blah. Anyway, long story short, they tapped hard lead me into SAG because we had all the episodes. I did like over, I think 620 episodes of sure, yeah, yeah. on air, ununion, non-union TV. Yeah. <laughs> Get that. Yeah. It's kind of like uh, uh, getting in a university on uh, a mature, mature student status or whatever. You've already done the legwork. Right. Yeah. yeah, it was, yeah. it was, uh, but I, I'm glad I figured that out on, you know, out pretty early, but then I started auditioning here in LA and I, I couldn't get anything, man, nothing, um, except 14 game shows. I did get on 14 game shows. <laughs> yeah. You became the, the game show queen. I called game show pro. <laughs> yeah. That's something, I don't know if it, it, if it's as much as it used to be, but, uh, you know, there was a time when, when actors, when that was a great way for actors to make, to make some coin, right? Like do, doing commercial stuff and, and comedians. Well, also uh, many, many celebrities that, you know, have been on the dating game as I also was as right. the picker, they call it. So there's two positions. The picker is the one who talks the most and mm-hmm. the one they want on camera. And then there's, 
you know, the three contestants that you choose. So I actually was honored enough to be the picker, like Suzanne Summers was on and John Ritt, lots of, yeah, lots of people, lots of famous celebs have, have done it. And so I was thankful to be in that realm. Um, I think with game shows, I had the same, it's, I'm definitely going to call it kids club energy where you get excited even when you lose. And that's how you get Mm -hmm. on a game show. That's I'm giving you a tip right now. You just be excited no matter what, what happens, just smile and be excited and you can get on a game show. Oh yeah. It's the improv thing. Yeah. Take any offer. I go with it. Anything is good. There's no, don't turn anything down. Just go. Yeah. And when you lose, <laughs> just go and go when big. you lose, you're like, Oh, but you still kind of look happy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so what are some of the game shows you did? Oh then? my gosh. Are you ready? Okay. I went on yeah. shop till you drop, which, okay. um, a lot of people don't remember that one, but I went on with one of my gay friends and it was during the family channel days. We couldn't say okay. that we were friends, even though right. this is my best gay friend. We had to be a couple. Mm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. That was the, <laughs> you know, I've been, I was on Win, Lose, or Draw with Burt Convy. Okay. And that was nice. like an 83. I, that was my first game show. And um, then uh, I did Supermarket Sweep uh Four times, almost one of the biggest uh, grand champions on Supermarket Sweep, actually. Nice. Um, also with my gay friend, uh, the same one. So we, we became a good team. Uh, yeah. I was on Hollywood Squares, which was. Oh, wow. There's a, there's a big one. Eh? Yeah. Well, the funny thing about that story is I had started to kind of get into comedy when I got on Hollywood Squares. And yeah. uh, Steve Sharippa, who was on the Sopranos and ran the Riviera Comedy Club in Vegas, he was actually on the squares. And I might get in trouble for saying this, but oh, well, I'm not going to be on any more games. <laughs> but this is a really cool story is they ask you, well, do you know anyone in the squares? Like, do you know any of the celebrities? And I was like, right. I knew Steve, I know Steve Sharippa. And they said, yeah, but do you know him, know him? And I'm like, uh, like, like, well, what do you mean? And they're like, well, do you, have you had like lunch with in him? In a biblical sense? Right, right. <laughs> have you had lunch with him? Like, would he know your name? Yeah. And I'm like, um, yeah, 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 I think so. Mm-hmm. And they said, well, okay, so stay here. We're going to go ask him. So whatever, they go out of the room, they, they come back and they go, <clears throat> okay, um, yeah, you don't know him. <clears throat> Ouch. Right? Uh, and I was like, okay, all right. Um, Judy Gold was on that show. Martin Mull was on that show. And Martin, oh, right. yeah, yeah. Martin Mull was actually on my Win, Lose, or Draw episode. Nice. The very first game that I did. So I kind of knew, but they said contestant stuff didn't matter. But, but I did know Steve. But uh, anyway, okay, you could take back my trip to London and Paris that I won. Okay, Hollywood Square, yeah. take it back. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty cool. So how did I get in a stand-up, Dave? Yes, how did you get in a stand-up? <laughs> I knew you were going to ask me that. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, after I moved to L.A., I, I actually took a, a job, a, a, a sort of a temp job at Warner Brothers. And... Mm-hmm. Uh, I was pretty good at computers, so I was kind of temping and doing some computer work. And I met a guy there 
and we started dating and then we're in bed one day and we're joking around and he's like, you are hilarious. And I said, maybe you shouldn't tell me that when we're in bed, but thank you very much. I think. And he said, no, I'm, yeah. I'm taking this stand-up class in Hollywood. You should come. You should do it. And I'm like, stand-up comedy. Oh, my gosh. You know, like, wow, actually structure this, whatever it is I'm doing. And so yeah. I went and I, oh, my gosh, I was hooked. From day one, I went in there because the very first class, I'm on stage and this amazing teacher named Greg Dean, who still teaches stand-up mm -hmm. comedy today, who is such an inspiration in my life and just an amazing teacher. Um, he has a book too, um, several books actually. And he just, uh, he would ask you, interview you questions on stage. You would just stand on stage and he would ask you about your life. And I'm like, well... I was poor and I grew up on food stamps and I'm divorced. And he was like, yes. And more details, details, details. And I'm like, Oh mm -hmm. no, I don't want details. And he's like, Oh yes, I do. That's where the funny is and the details. Yeah. And it's kind of like some kind of weird therapy. I ended up crying on stage, you know, uh, sure. because he asked me about my divorce and I was like, Oh, I'm not upset about my divorce. You know, even my blood type is B positive. Uh, which is a horrible joke, but he was like, no, that's not true. That's not really true. You must be upset about your divorce. Yeah. And I'm like, but how is that funny? Uh, yeah. And he kept just mining it. And finally I had this breakdown. And then out of that came amazing jokes. Like I, I talked about how my husband left me, you know, for someone younger looking. Sure. He was 12. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I don't want to get married again. I like being thin. Uh, yeah. <laughs> one of my favorite jokes of all time. And in all that came, you know, the discussions of divorce where he left me, told me I was fat. You know, I look extremely young for my age. And of course, he left me for someone younger. So how ironic mm -hmm. is that? And but it all came from, and that's where stand-up comes from, is talking about, you know, the crap. Um, yeah, raking the muck. Yep, yep. For other people's enjoyment. Yeah. I mean, I like to say yeah. I'm trailer trash and people don't believe me. And I say, well, if you don't believe me, it, I may not look like it on the outside, but underneath, you know, Kmart bra, pay less shoes, NASCAR promotional racing underwear. <laughs> Skid marks included. That stuff doesn't go away, does it? <laughs> See, you can't, you know, you have to really have the Kmart, you know, you, the Payless shoes. You, I still shop at Payless. I still shop at the 99 cent store, even though I have yeah. means because it is bred into me to not waste money. Right. And mm -hmm. thankfully now I've earned money and that's been great. Mm -hmm. um, constantly trying to get out of that situation, of course. And who knew I would be able to do it with comedy. I am so blessed. Um, and have worked very hard, but I've met some amazing people. And my method of operation has always been everybody you're going to meet is going to be in your life in the future in some way. And so yeah. be nice, be kind and treat everyone, everyone, just everybody should sure. be treated the same, you know, uh, of all sizes, shapes, colors. And um, it's been a good uh, methodology. And that's what I love about stand up is that you get to hear from everybody. I always say, 
Stand-ups are so enticing because they're the writer, director, producer, and performer. And stand-up literally is people talking about their lives. So you have doctors, lawyers, nurses, teachers, animal lovers, vets. You know, literally, that's what you do is you, you come and you talk about your life on stage. So we get to hear through stand-ups what it's like to have cerebral palsy, what it's like to have a stutter, yeah. you know, what, what's it like to be a nurse? What's mm-hmm. fascinating, but in a funny way, they get to tell us all the shit yeah. that happened. <laughs> yeah. And so you, so you start studying, you, you start taking yeah. this, uh, this workshop and then you're hooked. And what do you do right, right away? You start doing uh, uh, like um, beginner's nights at, at local clubs or in, and, and just working on a few minutes of, of comedy or how'd you get into it? Just jump right in. Well, this is the funny part is I told you a guy talked me into the class. And then I get yeah. into the class and I break up with that guy and get together sure. with another guy in the class. Um, right. His name was Dave Reinitz, a very important mm-hmm. uh, person in my life. Uh, because we actually became um, life partners and comedy partners uh, for 19 Mm -hmm. years after that class. So in that class, I actually thought he was a terrible comic, terrible comic, Um, (laughs) hated his comedy. I was so much funnier at the time. I would say he got better than me after time, but um, Mm -hmm. we, we started dating and we started doing comedy and then we started producing shows around town because we uh, wanted performance opportunities. And instead of like being an actor and waiting, what I don't like about being an actor is that, you know, you get called in for an audition and you're competing against whoever, however many, and you're reading someone else's lines. So, so that's such a subjective art form because the people producing it, you may be a great actor, but, but maybe you're not what they want for that role. So it has nothing to do with mm-hmm. your ability to perform. Whereas as a standup, you're writing, directing, producing, and performing. So you're in control of what content you put out there. And so yeah. we just decided that we would produce our own shows. So I could MC. He could MC, we could be in the show, we could produce the show. And if we made money, we'd make money. So we actually started a show called Uncle Clyde's Comedy Contest. It was, he had actually started it with another uh, person. Um, In fact, coincidentally, the wife of my old teacher, Greg Dean, I was talking about. And they Mm -hmm. did it a couple of times and I actually competed in it and I won third place. And it was produced really shitty. I have to be honest. Like, like it was just mm-hmm. kind of messy. <laughs> they needed a Virgo mm-hmm. like me to come in. And so right. I win third place. I meet Dave. We start dating and then we start producing this show together. And we still have the show at our club. However, many years later, I sometimes call Flappers Comedy Club the house that Clyde's built because that mm-hmm. show, we would produce it weekly. And we, um, every week on a Wednesday, we were at different venues around town, um, even including the Ice House, Jatana, the Haha ha Cafe, which um, wasn't always the Haha ha Cafe. We, we started our show there and sort of built up the club. And so we had been producing at various locations around for many years and just started to realize that people looked at us as like the owners, like, well... We were mm-hmm. strong producers, brought hundreds of people to these venues. 
And, um, but realize we current. The wheels start to spin there. Yeah, probably. yeah we couldn't, we <laughs> couldn't uh, think we couldn't control like the food though. And that would be disappointing if the food was bad. Yeah. It looked on us. We couldn't control the stage. Mm. It looked bad on us. So we sort of had this crazy idea to maybe have our own club one day, which was a huge yeah. dream. And our date night would be going around and looking at venues, basically. And for 10 years, we, we just that was our date night. And we talked about every which way would be a good way to have a club and what would work and what wouldn't work and what kind of comics we'd book and how we'd get to be in it and would we like it and would we hire a comic. I mean, we literally thought about everything. Um, and then 10 years ago, 10 years this year, this May, right? Yeah. Exactly. We uh, saw this place in Burbank and um, it was a huge, huge location, like a macaroni grill was in there and it mm -hmm. was vacant. And I was like, I love that space, but we're never going to be able to afford that ever, ever, ever. Like, there's no way we're like little comedians, you know, we're just, I would say we were making money, but we weren't like getting rich. You know, we were surviving. Yeah. Uh, and my partner, he owned another business and I actually had a little side computer business to try and make money. And we were doing comedy at night. So we were working, you know, day and night. But out of nowhere, weirdly enough, um, some a real estate agent sent us, it was just random, random, sent us a picture of a marquee in um, the Claremont area. And it mm -hmm. said, Gerrymander Comedy Club, coincidentally, in this time of political craziness. And we got, we got <laughs> this... Um, email and we're like what the hell is this this is like is this some kind of like someone's trying to bribe us or something someone's this is a killer's note i mean it was just it was very weird the way it came to us so we called up and this real estate person said hey i'm in claremont and there's a space here in claremont they want to have a comedy club here and i heard through the grapevine that you guys were really good producers so would you be interested in putting a comedy club in Claremont? And we're like, Claremont, where's that? Um, it's in the Inland Empire. It's, it's about 40 minutes outside of LA, kind of near the Pomona fairground. Mm -hmm. And, but we're okay. like, Oh, well that's sounds, how do you know what we do? And we didn't even know anyone really cared about what we did or thought it was important. Obviously yeah. we were, we were making some money and bringing lots of people to various venues. So we go out there and long story short, the property owners in Claremont said we could have this space free, no rent for a year if we developed a comedy club there in Claremont. And um, we're like, what? Free rent for a year? How, why would you want that? <laughs> well, WTF. Yeah. Well, apparently a lot of cities. I didn't know this then, but I know now have a comedy club on their agenda to attract because it's kind of a safe form of adult entertainment. I'll say, I'll say like okay. it can attract big celebrities, but like people come and go and alcohol is limited and there's a lot of pros and cons also supporting the arts and bringing arts to the community. Mm -hmm. So Claremont yeah. had that on their agenda to get a comedy club in that city. So, oh, so the real estate developer 
knew if we got it started that we'd probably be long-term tenants. And so we actually right. started in Claremont first and put okay. a small club there. Um, and that was in 2009. So that was before Burbank, but it all kind of happened at the same time because that was like January mm. of, or, or December of 2009. And then in May of 2010, we, uh, got involved in the, in the Burbank, uh, venue. And, um, I told you the rent was astronomical. So we had this crazy idea. We didn't know how we would, first of all, we got one free rent now going in Claremont. So we're working out our operations there and and we're trying to figure out how do we, you know, serve, how long is the show, how, you know, comedy club operations is a little bit, a lot different than a restaurant because number one, it's timed. You have to get a lot of food out in a short period of time. Servers yep. can't be talking during a show. And so there's sure. all kinds of little, little things about running a club that we had to figure out. Like we didn't know. So we're, at, we're in Claremont figuring yep. it out. And then in May, I said, Dave and, and I came up with this idea to ask the city of Burbank to basically front the money on this vacant macaroni grill space that was an eyesore to the community. So... Mm-hmm. <laughs> We set up a meeting with the city and uh, I bring donuts, of course. We go to this big mucky muck city meeting and I plop the donuts in the middle of the Mm -hmm. table. And the first thing they say is, we can't have those donuts. Are you trying to bribe us? (laughs) And I'm like, oh my God, no donuts. All right, outside. Oh, I didn't bring these donuts. I don't know who brought these donuts. (laughs) I I had no concept of the city rules or... Uh, and, and so, okay, right. so donuts get out of the room and then we're sitting there. And then to, if any of you have worked in city organization, I mean, it's very boring. It's very tight laced. It's not a comedy yeah. environment, but yet you've got two no. comedians coming in to pitch a comedy project to these stiffy mucky mucks. Anyway, so the donuts were just part of our, whatever donuts are gone. And they, we, we pitch them this idea. We say, okay, so this, space is vacant. It's huge. It's an old macaroni grill. It's been vacant for 18 months. Why don't you let us, we had confidence now from Claremont. We were like, why don't you let us develop this space as a comedy club and you, the city of Burbank, pay the rent while we develop it and uh, turn this around and bring down back downtown Burbank. And they look at us like Mm -hmm. we're insane and say, wow, Great idea, guys. Really great. Great out of the box thinking. Kind of really original. <laughs> we can't do it, but great idea. <laughs> oh, really? <Yeah. laughs> nice oh, try. No, you can't do it. <laughs> A for oh, I, we thought we had it. They were like, they said, but what you should do is apply for an economic redevelopment grant. I'm like, what's that? Mm-hmm. And they said, well, in the state of California, gives grant money to people who can prove that they can develop a business in an area like this, where it's an eyesore and you could apply for money. And if they give it to you, you'll have enough money to jump into this thing. And we're like, Oh, wow. So we applied. And, um, that was a whole, that's a whole show in itself, but we basically had to lobby five city council members. And I don't know if anyone knows what that actually means, but we had to go meet, multiple times with each city council member and basically convince them 
show them our business plan and tell them that we were somehow two comedians who have no experience running a comedy club that we can somehow take over a very large rent uh, amount in this major city and make a comedy club out of in competing in the biggest market entertainment market in the world against the comedy store, yeah, the no Latin factory. And of course, nobody wanted to touch comedy in the Valley. That was the real interesting part mm-hmm. is we're technically the Valley. Um, right. And nobody. And why was that? Well, well, because there's so many entertainers here and all the studios are in Burbank. And so there was there's sort of right. this misnomer that it's over it's saturated with performers. OK, but I thought the complete opposite. I said, well, that's fantastic. Think how easy it is. It's going to be to get talent there. I mean, we're right in the back backyard. Sure. But again, just I don't know why none of the big ones risked it. But one of the things we did was because I had lived in Burbank, I owned a house in Burbank and we went to the city council lobbied all these city council members and uh, they tried to scare us with things like one, one of them sat down and said, okay, guys, Barbara, do you realize you're going to be having to work at least 20 hours a day? And Dave looked over at me and he goes, wow, Barb, are you ready for a demotion? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. We had been working very hard anyway. So that was like, what you're trying to scare us with that? So anyway, we uh, go to the city council meeting and we invited every comedian we knew. 50 comics showed up at a city council meeting on our behalf. So we flooded the city council meeting with comedians and they all got up and started speaking on our behalf and saying that we had done great things for them as producers and, you know, really inspired the arts and all of that. Um, very funny moments. Um, probably one of the funniest city council meetings ever in the history of Burbank. I think they would even admit that. And, uh, we had a guy spinning a cheeseburger on an umbrella, the incredible Michael Rayner. Um, <laughs> so when we came right down to it, um, I also said like a dumb, dumb, but, or maybe it was smart that I would, uh, put my house up as collateral for this loan. Sure. And they said, oh, really? You'll put your house up in Burbank as collateral? Well, that's, yeah. that means they're serious, man. They're going to make it. Yeah, absolutely. And we got four out of five uh, city council votes. And uh, the thing is, this is the 10th year. And my house is still, uh, has a tax lien against it. Uh until we get through this year, because the the rule with the loan was we had to make a certain amount of revenue each year, and each year, ten uh, percent of the loan would be forgiven. So we're in the tenth year, and we have right. to make a certain amount of revenue this year for my house to be released. And then what happens? COVID nineteen shuts us down. Oh yeah. So I'm a, I'm a little nervous. <laughs> I'm a little nervous. We got to, we got to start, we got to open up now and make some revenue. Um, so all that struggle and then freaking COVID happens like for a business person, which I've now become, uh, (laughs) you know, the comedy part I've over the years have taken on some clients and managed some comedians. And, um, I love the booking and entertainment aspects of, of it, but being a club owner is just 
it's it's really a pretty awesome experience that I don't there's not a lot of women who can actually say they've done it. In fact, there are very few female club owners in the country um, and comedy is dominated by men, uh, specifically on the performance mm-hmm. side mm-hmm. and also on the business side. So that's right. that's been both a challenge uh, and a blessing for female comedians, because I definitely book more female headliners than I would say other club owners do. Um, and sure. my new dream is to produce comedy all over the world, which I was lucky enough in December of last year to uh, go to Costa Rica and produce, yeah, that was a great produce night. an all-female comedy show in Costa Rica. And uh, I think it went over well. That's uh, from... It went over super well. I, that's that's how we met. We met that day, and I, I we met because I came over to congratulate you on uh, what a great show it was and how enjoyable. And it we was. raised money. It was a lot. And of we fun. raised money for charity. Um, I call yeah. that a win win win. It's like the the female comedians wanted to come to Costa Rica, so you know their trips were and accommodations were handled. Um, I wanted to test the waters there and see if comedy would work there. Um, the locals came to support the charity and get laughs. Mm-hmm. So that's yeah. when it works. It's, it's definitely a win, win, win. Um, and it also, it's also nice when you, uh, you go away on a trip like that and your downtime is spent zip lining and going on tours and hiking and, and enjoying the beach and all that kind of stuff. That doesn't hurt. Oh does it? yes. Well, we did meet some friends <laughs> that took very good care of us and kept us entertained the whole yeah. time. That is right. And I would, I would, uh, I have to, of course, give kudos to Mr. Michael Simons if he'll he's listening to this. What an amazing human being and real estate agent who um, helped me produce the show there. I mean, he was really the one who convinced me that it could be done. We right. started talking about comedy and I was like, do you think we could do a show here? And he's like, oh, absolutely. I mean, just so supportive and so right on and super funny himself, by the way. Um uh-huh. And uh, such a, uh, I think, an inspiration for the local people there, too, in Costa Rica. So that uh, co-producing there with him, he was my eyes and ears in in Costa Rica. And I brought the comedy from the States and it just it went over well. So I I hope to be producing another show there. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. He's one of those people that's definitely because he's he's like Mr. Uh. Uh, uh, Mr. Real Estate in the, the large, not just the Cocoa area, but larger area around here. And uh, he's one of those people as a great connector, yeah. right? That's what you need in a situation yes. like that. People can bring everybody to the table for a big event like that. So yeah. I have discovered, you know, over the years, it's funny, people ask me all the time, they say I'm funny and they, they ask why I'm not performing and I anymore per se. And I said, but I, I do, I am. I just, it's, For me, it's comedy is just part of me. It's become my life in so many ways. It's not like Mm -hmm. I have to be. It's kind of nice not to have to be that actress I was so many years ago that needed the ego boost of applause. Now I really get the boost if I make you laugh. Like I'm trying to get you to laugh. And if you're laughing, I've won. You know, I, I've. (laughs) I feel like I'm successful and I teach yeah. young comics the same thing. We actually have a school at our club. It's called Flappers University or FU. 
where yeah. learning is a joke. Yeah. yeah <laughs> and yeah. I, I now <laughs> teach stand up to young up and comers and um, talk a lot about the business side of comedy, which I have a lot of experience at. And it's really, really, really uh, satisfying to try to enlighten people with the knowledge that you've gained in all your mistakes, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> in all yeah, your trials sure. and tribulations and try to sum it up into one little complete nugget that you can try to implant in their head. It still never works as quickly as you want, but, um, yeah, yeah. but when you see them succeed and I have had many successful students and so has my partner who also still teaches who was my life partner, but now is not my life partner, but is my business partner. So there's yeah. been lots of change in that realm too, but, uh, yeah, that's got to make things interesting for yeah, sure. Yeah, but it's a good it's a good lesson, you know, to for people, you know, who want to be in business or who want to be great performers, you know, relationships are everything and you've got to mm -hmm. understand what relationship is what. And we have all kinds of different relationships, you know, and sure. Hopefully mastering relationships I think is the key to being successful in any business or any dream. Um, when you burn, burn yeah. bridges and you burn relationships, then those people aren't there for you when you need them. And as I said in the beginning, everybody I've ever met has somehow inspired, taught me and been helpful when I needed them for some reason, as I hope I have been that for people as well. You know, I keep saying and I will keep continue to say forever that laughter is essential. They yes. have told us that we're not essential, it, but laughter is absolutely 100% as essential as Taco Bell. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know that Taco Bell is essential, but well, like, <laughs> I hear what you're apparently saying. Apparently <laughs> it is. <laughs> According to the government right now, yeah. you can get Taco Bell yeah. and guns, but you can't have yeah. one person on stage telling a joke to some people eating six feet apart from each other. I don't understand that part. And I will continue to yeah. fight my way to the top. So here's what we came up with as a solution. Do you want to hear? We just came up with this today. I, of course, I want to hear what the solution is. Well, this is, is a creative way because, you know, who goes to a comedy club to eat? You usually go mm -hmm. to a comedy club to see jokes <laughs> and there happens to be food there. So you eat. Now we yeah. have we have yeah. great food, mind you. I we really do like steak and salmon and full dinner experience. But so we're an exception. So they're saying, "Oh, open as a restaurant." So what we're going to do is we're going to open as a restaurant and separate the tables at mm -hmm. six feet apart and all of that. But two sure. of the ideas we had, one of them I'll tell you we're not going to get away with. But then the second one we can do. So the first one was, what if we have a table on the stage? And mm -hmm. we just happen to have two comedians sitting at the table dining. <laughs> right. <laughs> and you happen to overhear them talking. Nice. So, right? We don't amplify it. Be exotic. Okay. That's yeah, yeah. so never wanted it. So that was that was the idea that we're kind of that's kind of pushing the limits. But the second idea It's worth trying. Yeah. The second idea is um Literally, we're going to play the soundtrack of com comedians over the PA and have a restaurant. And everybody mm -hmm. who comes in to support the restaurant will get a free ticket to a future live show. And 
That's basically all we can do. So we're going to, until we can open as a live entertainment venue, that's basically it. So we're hoping that our locals and fans and friends will support the restaurant in that way for at least a couple of weeks until we get better news about opening. But it has caused us to be super creative and we have been running comedy shows online on Zoom. So if you go to flapperscomedy.com, you can see our whole calendar there. And we had Maria Bamford Mm -hmm. and Jimmy Pardo and Hal Sparks and Christopher Titus and all kinds of comedians coming out and doing shows online for us. And we're selling tickets enough to help keep the club alive for a little bit longer. And the headliners have been amazingly generous in donating the majority of the money to us um, and or other charities in, um, in the area. So that's been amazing. We also started a program called gift a meal program. And Mm -hmm. this is an opportunity for people to, who have the means to donate, to purchase a gift card from flappers. But we give mm-hmm. that gift card to a comedian in need. So oh, that's awesome. another one of those win-win-wins where we get the revenue to help stay alive. A comedian who needs food gets food. And of course, someone who's donating gets to make a donation and uh, feel great and also get a tax write-off. So those are the yeah. kinds of programs, you know, we've implemented. And if, if you um, are listening to this and you can, you know, people push the takeout so much, it's like buying takeout isn't what's going to help a comedy club survive. It's it's buying tickets mm-hmm. to future shows. It's like I said, buying gift cards for the future, banking on them to stay around for the yeah, long yeah. haul. Yeah. 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 And they're like the, the, the gift card thing is is a, a great example because I think people people tend to forget, you know, they talk about uh, comedians and actors and stars and stuff these days. And, and, and the, the, those people, the Drew Carries of the world, the people who, you know, make a lot of money and, and become quite wealthy, that, that's a very small group, right? The, I don't know what the stats are like in Canada, in, in the U.S., but living here in, in Canada, when I do live in Canada, uh, working as a, an actor, you know, the average actor probably makes less than $10,000 a year doing what they do. And then they have to find all kinds of other ways to subsidize their income. And they're usually, and comedians and actors and performers are usually the first people to fall through the cracks because they don't have all kinds of programs to help out when times get rough. They scramble and they hustle and they do without. So that's a great way to give back to performers. Well, specifically you know. comedians, remember, they're, they make $25 to maybe $100, $150 a show. No, I would say you're, you know, mm-hmm. weekly comedians who are hosting or doing an hour show, something like that. That's really the pay range. And remember, they're not employees. I have 51 employees. I had to lay off 41 of those people. Yeah. But And uh, I have yeah. 7,000 comedians in my database that I book on a regular basis. We have over 40 to, we have about 40 to 50 shows a week that have five to 10 comedians. And most of those comedians would get Mm -hmm. anywhere from 25 to 500, $600 a show. So they lost a Mm -hmm. lot of money and they couldn't get unemployment at first here in the States because they are technically independent contractors of the club. And rightly so we don't hire them all the time. We hire them when we can hire them. And so you're right. It's sure. really sad that, that they fell through the cracks. So 
it was um, good to do that program where we were able to give them some food and just, you know, basic things. But, oh, it's, I hope. Yeah, you got to be creative at times like this. Here's here's my idea. Why don't you do this? Uh, declare the club a restaurant um, and see if maybe you can get somebody like um, uh, uh, hire uh, Ray Romano and Chris Rock to be for fry cooks and just mic them. <laughs> nice idea. I love it. I love it. <laughs> yeah, you can have a new new celebrity fry cooks every uh, for, you know, uh, if, you know, turn it over, do two shows a night, quote unquote shows. <laughs> And uh, if you don't have a window so you can see into the kitchen, maybe now's a good time to put one in. I told, I also said the servers, when they're delivering their food, we just give them a joke and uh, they deliver a joke every time they serve something to the, to the guest. <laughs> uh, yes, well, def- desperate times, uh, right? Desperate measures. You said it right on, you know, this is when art thrives because, um, you know, yeah. uh, I always say with comedy, comedy is about what's wrong with us, not what's right with us. And we wouldn't even have jokes if it weren't for times like these. And wait till you see what's coming out of this from the comedians. It's really miraculous. I know myself, I've done more performing and written more comedy over the last three months because it's just there's so much to talk about and so much to be mad about and so much to suffering going on, which I know it sounds yeah. terrible that we make laughs out of, out of bad times, but we do it. You know, the artist is willing to take risks that the normal people aren't. So we're able to say things that you might be sure. thinking and we're the ones who risk whether it's funny or not. And, um, thank God for that because, um, I don't know if I could get through this without laughter. Um, <laughs> I, I know I yeah. couldn't. <laughs> We were chatting about this the other day, uh, and um, I think it's been tough for a few years now for comedy, um, only because there's been a lot of turmoil in society. There's a lot of stuff going on, pretty heavy stuff going on. Me Too movement, which had to happen, and, and political correctness and, and people being touchy about what, what's funny and what's not. And um, that's all stuff that's really important to explore and to talk about. But... Uh, when it comes to comedy, comedy is like the last bastion of, of uh, being able to go out there and cross. You know, you don't know the, where the line is until the, that comedian crosses the line. So there's always been an Andrew Dice Clay and there's, there's always been all these comics who go way over the line and they take shit for it and people love them for it. But somebody has to figure out what that line is because it shifts all the time. It, it's constantly changing. So I find that's the beautiful thing about comedy. That's the thing that irks people a lot too, but it's so necessary to have people that figure out what that line is and cross it now and then, you know? I was at a George Carlin concert once, uh, this is not so long before he died, actually very short time, probably within a year before he died. And, um, he was doing his God bit. And if you don't know it, look it up. It's hilarious. Um, (laughs) <laughs> he also has a great bit about washing hands, which is very, very yeah. prominent and funny right now. Uh, if you go back and watch it, um, but literally the God bit, it's 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 his point of view on on God and what he believes. Yeah. And literally half the audience walked out. Now, they mind you, they already paid mm-hmm. their one hundred and forty dollars for the ticket. So it's kind of dumb, really, if you're buying a ticket. 
Mm-hmm. You know, you might as well sit through it. But it's funny how what I find find interesting is that com- comedy is so powerful, literally the most powerful tool we have in politics, we have in life, because yep. the fact that those people walked out after paying for that ticket means they somehow believe what the comedian is saying. But you don't have to. The mm-hmm. comedian's not asking you to believe or to agree. They're just stating their opinion. And people get so yeah. agitated by that, you know, that it that that tells you how powerful comedy is. And I always tell young comics, you know, literally what I my favorite joke is what's the difference between a comedian and a speaker? About five thousand dollars. Mm-hmm. Uh, I say that because literally, our, I mean, do you remember Obama's inaugural speech? It was hilarious. Do you think that Trump on Twitter is not funny? Do you think that he doesn't know what he's doing with some of that? I challenge yeah. you to think about that differently. I think that every successful speaker in since the dawn of man has used humor in those influential and powerful speeches to make change. And what's happening sure. right now is, yes, there there are lines, as you said, it's like, what is considered mm-hmm. PC? But I tell you, when Trump got elected, I said to my friend Jimmy Dore, and if you don't know who he is, you can go listen to him on YouTube. Mm-hmm. I said, your career is going to yep. go bonkers. He's a progressive and very uh, agitated and has a lot of opinions about Trump and the administration. and. He literally has mm-hmm. had his career skyrocket since Trump got in office. But that's because sure. that's what he wanted to talk yeah. about. So, you know, and yeah. if, if comedians can't push the line and get topics talked about, who can? There, I don't think anyone else has more yeah. power to do it than we do. And um, especially even after all this with um, what's happening with the Black Lives Matter movement and the racial injustice and yeah. Trump. I mean, literally yesterday. Trump said he called all the governors in our United States and said, you must dominate the protesters. You must dominate them or you'll look like a bunch of jerks. Yeah, sounds like a wrestling coach. I'm quoting what he said. I'm not even telling a joke and you're (laughs) laughing. Um, My point is, you see, what that is what will make change, though. People hear the idiocracy and what's being said. And we then, the comedians, can point it out to you, those words that they're using, and make, make a joke, and then we make you think. And then hopefully we make change. Yeah, mm. yeah. well, look, if comedians have a tremendous amount of power. And if you don't believe that, and, you, you know, look up <laughs> Lenny Bruce, because they crushed yeah. him. Ugh. They crushed him. Uh, because they wanted to silence his voice. And that was a long time ago. And he was talking about stuff that these days nobody would blink, blink about. But that's, that's how that line changes. That line constantly changes. It's always in flux. And, we're, and the comedian's always figuring out where it is, how to step over it. And, and, and Some of and, my favorites, uh, yeah. Jim Jeffries. I know we have that in common, right? You're a Jim Jeffries fan. Oh, yeah, my gosh. He's great. And pokes, amazing. pokes, pokes. Listen to his bit on gun control. It's, it's amazing. Christopher Titus, a great friend of mine, constantly also talks a lot about a poor upbringing and that kind of thing, but also just about the idiocracy of, you know, what's happening in the world. And uh, 
Oh, it's comics are so smart. Um, you really have to be smart to be a yeah. comedian. You know, if, 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 if we can keep the venues alive and, and, and do that, it's going to be a massive boom after this is over because, because this is always when comedy thrives, right? It's the difficult yeah. times. Like we said, uh, you know, it's just not a, there's no, uh, there's no well, mystery there. When- you know, this is this is what when I opened is for. the club in 2010, it was right after a big recession in the state. And um, I remember everyone thought we were nuts opening at that time. And we said, you know, hey, listen, nothing, nothing survives more than alcohol and entertainment. And it really is yeah. true unless they <laughs> tell you you can't do entertainment. That's the only difference here. Man, if it if it was up and running, yeah. it, people would be flocking to it. They are. They're flocking to Netflix. It's the screen entertainment, unfortunately, yeah, for sure. which is the, Absolutely. the big corporate guys Absolutely. getting all the money right now. Yeah. And and of course, you know, uh, when you tell people that they can't do stuff, it just makes them angrier and want it more <laughs> than they've ever wanted it before. So you've got yeah. that going for you yeah. as well. Well. We'll see. We'll see what happens. Call me in a couple months and ask me the same questions, how I'm feeling. And yeah, well, when things get back to whatever the new normal is and you can open your door and you can have people come in and, 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 and uh, partake in comedy again, who are you looking forward to having back up on your stage? I, mean, I bet you want everybody up there, all 7,000 clients who want to be able to, to uh, get, get their uh, chance. But uh, talk about some of the people who come through your door that have been regulars that you're looking forward to seeing back well, up on the stage? Some of them have already called me and some of them won't do Zoom. They won't do non-live shows. They just won't. I won't, I won't sure. necessarily point them out to you, but I can tell you that there are some major headliners who are just very, not only that, they're really upset with what's going on in the world and finding it hard as all of us are to find the comedy. And you know, again, as I said, if, if we can't, if the comedians can't do it, who can? So um, we just need to take mm-hmm. some time a little and get our mojo back too. So, um, but uh, we have had so many amazing people in the club from, I mean, Gabriel Iglesias, Kevin Hart, Jerry Seinfeld, Brad Garrett, wow. Adam Ferrara, yeah. Maria Bamford, Lori Kilmartin. I mean, there's just I, Christopher Titus. Uh, Jim Jeffries. Um, hell, who do I want in the quickest? Oh, I want the political comedians in the quickest. I do. I want Titus in. Yeah. I want Jeffries in. I want Jimmy Dore in. <laughs> I want to hear their take yeah. on what's going on. I can't wait to hear it. Um, you know, some of it you can listen on YouTube, but when you're sitting there in front of them yeah. and um, they're literally talking right to you. It's, it's, it's a, it's like they're your best friend, you know, and it is definitely a mm-hmm. different experience than watching a video on YouTube. Um, but you can follow all those comedians on their podcasts and all that. But um, most of the yeah. time in a club, what a lot of people don't realize also is that the comedian is doing like new material. They're doing material that they're working on. Mm-hmm. Like I said, like that gym. So it's usually stuff you haven't heard before. And that's, what makes it more right. even more exciting and then they master it and then they do it in their comedy special so um yeah but i miss literally just seeing these people's faces you know jamie kennedy uh god so many so many great comics um brad garrett so funny god i miss i miss him craig robinson yeah, from the office um just a joy yeah. ball of love and energy and 
Um, really just, I, I adore comedians. They're my favorite people in the world because smart and funny is just a great combo. I don't know if this is a fair question. I was telling a, a guest the other day, uh, I asked my guests, what are you going to be doing in 10 years? But I don't know the answer to that myself. What do you think you'll be doing in 10 years from now? Oh my God. Well, hopefully I'll still have a house. <laughs> And a comedy uh, club? I hope so. I, I mean, it's hard to put 10 years into something and just give up on it in one day. I don't sure. plan to do that. So I will, I mean, in a way, fighting for this is, is I'm not going to say easier at all. I think, in fact, I think it's harder because when we started, we control everything we did. Right now, we it's out of our control. So we, we, can, we don't know. But we will come back mm -hmm. and comedy will triumph. So I imagine in 10 years that I'll have a comedy club that is running without me in the in it day to day. That's what I hope. And that I can still travel the world as I have and been and produce shows. That's really my ultimate dream is I would like to take comedy to places where it doesn't exist right now. Um, mm -hmm. Like in Costa Rica, there wasn't there's no comedy club there. Maybe I start a comedy club there. I right. also have a thoughts, you know, dabbled with uh, Hawaii, which uh, is a tough one. Um, but there's some areas in Mexico and also Spain. Uh, you know, there aren't a lot of comedy clubs mm -hmm. in Barcelona. There's little pubs that have comedy, but there's no comedy club, which is a very different experience. Right. So that's what I, I think sure. I'll be doing in 10 years. I'll probably have. Traveling the world and doing flappers yes. comedy presents or, in other people's or venues, that sort of thing. Starting a comedy club in 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 those cities, yeah, a brick and, and bringing flappers, yeah. bringing the flappers yeah. brand to uh, to others. And if all goes yeah. to shit, I'll be sitting on my ass back to food stamps and uh, living in a trailer. Why not go back to my roots? What the hell? Yeah. <laughs> you know you can do it. Been right? there, done that. <laughs> Got that one mastered. It's easy peasy. Fam's okay. Yeah. In fact, it's actually coming back as a sort of a gourmet food item. So I'm cool. Yeah. Hopefully it won't be too long until you can open up Flappers Comedy Club and get audiences back in. Uh, I hope that happens soon for you. Thank you very much for your time, Barb. I really appreciate it. Uh, it, it was uh, great to uh, have some laughs in this Yay, difficult time. Yay, I made you laugh. Woo! Yes, Mission you did. accomplished. <laughs> and I'm going to check out your website. Yes, flapperscomedy.com. There are there's a calendar there and all the shows right now are virtual. So you can go to there go to there and some of them are free, some there's $5, some they're $10. Um but there's something for everybody there. Also, we have our YouTube channel which is also Flappers Comedy and our social media is Flappers Comedy on Instagram, mm -hmm. Facebook, Twitter. We're all over the place at the same branding. Also on BarbaraHoliday.com, which is um, H-O-L-L-I-D-A-Y. I have some of my old game show footage there. And uh, also on the <laughs> Flappers YouTube channel. It's some of the most watched uh, videos, believe it or not. <laughs> it's my, my game show footage because I look like a total idiot, as you will see. It's, it's hilarious. Watch and laugh at my expense. Please enjoy Thank you so much for your time and thank you for doing what you do, bringing comedy to the world. And uh, you're doing uh, you're doing good work. You're doing God's <gasps> I work. I am Barbara. essential. Yay. You made me feel <laughs> essential today, Dave. You did. I'm glad I could do Thanks that for, for you today. Me. Cheers. Take care.
Bye. Ladies and gentlemen, Barbara Holiday. Be sure to visit flapperscomedy.com to check out some great comedy videos and then click on the promotions tab if you would like to support a comedian during these difficult times through the Gift a Meal Deal program. Moving on. This is a story told by my friend Maureen Riley. Time for another installment of... Please don't try this at home. Hi there, I'm Maureen Riley and this is my story. I was in the Newark, New Jersey airport coming home from a really great weekend in New York. I was tired and a little hungover, and I really didn't want to take my shoes off going through security. I was wearing a Gap jacket that had a military feel to it, and truth be told, it had a faux fur pink fringe around the hood that I had just taken off. My dad was in the army and I have all of these Riley patches that he had to sew onto all of his very technical military gear. So I thought it would be cool if I sewed one of those Riley patches onto my gap jacket. So there I am with my jacket on and my Nexus card and I'm asking the officer if I have to take my shoes off. He says no, hands me an orange card and I'm very quickly ushered through the whole security process. I don't know what's going on, but I'm moving quickly. My friend Heather is behind me and she's taking much more time than I am, but I keep going through, I keep going through. So I finally get to the end. I look at this officer. He grabs my orange card out of my hand and says, thank you for your service. Then it dawns on me, oh my God, they think that me and my cute little gap jacket are military. So I was mortified and I felt really terrible, but at the same time, I thought it was kind of funny. I got through the system quickly and me and my friend laughed all the way home to Toronto. Mission completed. I'm Maureen Riley and this is my story. Thank you, Maureen, and a big thank you as well to Barbara Holiday for sharing her cool story. Thanks again also to Mr. Jerry Stamp, who wrote and performed the Cool Story theme song and all other jingles and stings that appear on the show. Do yourselves a favor and look for Jerry's music wherever you stream. And finally, thank you for listening. Until we meet again. Everybody's had some Everybody's got a story What's yours?